Well, we just actually finished a study of the book of Acts. I was so encouraged and have come to love the gospel more and more as a result of it. And I just would like to take a look at Acts chapter 27 with you tonight. And my prayer is that as we study God's word, that you will be encouraged and challenged by it. Acts chapter 27 and a little bit of Acts chapter 28. This text is. um, It's a narrative account, a story of Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome by way of sea. And it is an enormously perilous journey. F.F. Bruce calls it a masterpiece of vivid narrative. It is not a masterpiece because of its um, incredibly deep theological truth. It's not thick. It is rich with detail, the kind of detail that could only come as a result of an eyewitness who was on board this ship. For the student of Scripture, this perilous journey on the sea might remind you of of the voyage of Jonah. For the student of literature, it might recall the Odyssey of Homer. But it's a long text, and we're not accustomed to reading uh, such long texts in our corporate worship services together. This is probably going to be amount to 50 some verses, but I want to read the whole story to you. And so I encourage you to follow along or or maybe just listen as I read and try to imagine what's going on here and, and visualize the story as it unfolds. Acts chapter 27, I'm going to read from verse one through Acts chapter 28, verse 16. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly. And gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now, it might be helpful to note that a lee is a geographical formation that protects ships from weather. It's going to be mentioned a couple of times so you'll be able to understand this nautical language. Continuing in verse five now. When we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Cnidus. And as the winds did not allow us to go any farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along with it, with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lasea. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, 
I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they would reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. I'm in verse 13 now. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run along on the citrus or Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, They began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food. 
having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all 276 persons in the ship. When they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Verse 39. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and let that and left them in the sea at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground and the bow stuck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan He ordered those who could swim to jump aboard overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So it was that all were brought safely to land. Chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us an unusual kindness For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out and because of the heat and uh, came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. When this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly and When we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, Alexandria with the twin gods as figureheads. Putting in Syracuse, we stayed there for three days and from there we made a circuit. And arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteli. 
There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they had heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. I agree with F.F. Bruce. That is a masterpiece of vivid narrative, isn't it? There's several ways to interpret this text. Interpretation number one. Some people would read this text about this perilous journey on the sea and they would see the faithfulness of the Apostle Paul. What an example of God's blessing on the faithfulness of his servant. You see, this is what happens when you're faithful to God. God will reward you with physical safety and see you through. My friends, that's the false gospel. That's not true. That's false doctrine. It's nothing more than the prosperity gospel itself. God does not anywhere in Scripture promise us physical safety and blessings in return for our faithfulness. If he did, then God owes a great apology to Stephen, who was a faithful man and was stoned. God needs to apologize to James, who had his head lopped off. And certainly, if God rewards the faithfulness of his servants with safety and physical blessings, then what do we make of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ? And don't fall into the trap of reading the Bible and coming out with the prosperity gospel. God does not promise us health, wealth. God doesn't promise us physical blessings in return for our obedience or our faithfulness to Him. Well, others wouldn't see it that way at all. They would see this storm as an illustration of the storms of life. They would draw lessons from this journey about weathering the storms of life. Well, while this is not the false gospel, I got to tell you, it's really bad hermeneutics. Many of the lessons that they might draw out would probably be true. But that's not why this text exists. That interpretation would represent a man-centered view of the Bible. We would come out with purely moralistic teaching. And we're really good at this, aren't we? We read the Bible as if it was fundamentally about us. When in fact the Bible is not fundamentally about us. We read the Bible as if we are to learn to grow in godly character traits and grow in wisdom and live righteous lives. And God gave us this book to accomplish those purposes in us. I got to tell you, it would take me the rest of the evening to apologize to you for the number of sermons that I've preached that were man-centered and moralistic. 
I've read Joshua and found nothing but leadership principles. I have gone through the Bible and I have preached character traits and righteous living and wisdom from cover to cover. And the problem with that is that it's not untrue what's being said. What I said was not untrue. But it misses the point when we read our Bibles as if it's fundamentally about us. My sermons would have been just as well received in a Jewish synagogue as they were in a Baptist church or a Christian school chapel. And if a sermon is just as well received in a Jewish synagogue as it is in our church, then we've missed the point. The Bible is not fundamentally about us. It is fundamentally about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he doesn't go over too well in Jewish synagogues. Well, if we can avoid the false gospel of prosperity theology, if we can avoid man-centered moralism, then maybe we can come up with a good interpretation of this text. One good way to view this text is from the perspective of the soldiers and the sailors that were on board this ship. It's an analogy of salvation. We could look at this and say that this perilous journey on the sea from Jerusalem to Rome is analogous of the salvation that only God can give us. The theme of rescue runs through this text, doesn't it? Just go back and kind of follow down, let your eyes drop through the text as I just call out some major details. Chapter 27, verse 1 through 8, the journey begins. And all of our journeys have begun somewhere. Different places for every one of us, but our journey begins. Then in verse 9 and 10, we see that a warning is given. And that warning is given by God's man. But quickly in verse 11, we see that that warning is rejected. And sure enough, just as God's man said, verse 13 through 17, we see that danger is realized. There's a great storm, and it's so great that in verse 18 through 20 of chapter 27, we see that all hope is lost. Experienced sailors, war-hardened soldiers have abandoned all hope. Of being saved, it says in verse 20. You know, that's a really critical point in anyone's life when they finally abandon all hope in saving themselves. And at that moment, verse 21 through 26, far greater than the storm, God gives a promise. That promise is communicated. It's a great storm, but there is a greater promise that is communicated by God that says. You will be safe. In fact, later in the text, it says that not even a hair of your head is going to be harmed. 
Then verse 27 through 32, we see that this promise requires faith and the faith is to abandon every other form of trying to save themselves. In fact, some of the soldiers go back and when they're supposed to be letting down the anchors, they're actually letting down the lifeboat because they're getting off this ship. And they're going to try to head for land in a lifeboat. Paul goes and he says, look, Julius, centurion in charge, if those guys get off of this ship, If you go back to the text, you will see that he didn't say they will be destroyed. He says, if those guys get off this ship, we will not be saved. Faith was required. And so listening to God's man this time. Julius orders the soldiers to cut the lifeboat away. Another really critical point in a person's journey towards salvation is coming to the realization that only God can save us. Only the promise of God through the word of God can save us. Verse 33 through verse 38, Paul reassures them of this promise, breaks bread and gives thanks. And don't you know, don't you know that Paul preached the gospel when he, quote, broke bread and gave thanks? Do you think the Apostle Paul is going to miss an opportunity like that? And then verse 29 through 44, we see promise fulfilled. It was difficult. They're freezing cold. They're wet. They've lost everything except for their lives. They're all saved as they wash up like castaway on the shore of this island. Some great truths are emphasized here. Listening to God's man, trusting God's promises. We've got to come to the point where we no longer trust ourselves or trust in any other way to save us than God alone. Salvation comes from God through his promise. And there's no other way. While this interpretation is legitimate and bears really good fruit, if that's the central theme of your interpretation and your reading of this text as you sit there in the morning and pour over it in your devotions or as you teach your Sunday school class or as I stand here and preach, if we leave it there, friends, we are short-sighted. So very, very short-sighted. Now, this, this story of a perilous journey from Jerusalem to Rome. God gave us this story. And if we divorce it from its context, it's nothing more than a good analogy of salvation or a moralistic tale of weathering life's storms. But when we keep this story in its context, then we see The God-glorifying truth that God is advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth and nothing can stop it. 
That's what this perilous journey teaches us. God is advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth and nothing can stop it. You've come here today and I have no idea what your week has been like, what your month has been like. I don't know what's going on in your life, what difficulties you have. But friends, that is an encouraging truth. That's what we should read when we read Acts 27 and 28. And here's why. Because from the beginning of this text, we see the presence of Paul as a prisoner on board a ship going to Rome. Look at chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy. This ship is taking this prisoner to Rome. The middle of our text, chapter 27, verse 23 through 25. The same context and promise is reiterated by this angel of the Lord. Chapter 27, verse 23, for this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. God's powerful. God's bigger than the storm. No. What does he say? Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And then our story ends in chapter 28, verse 14. Chapter 28, verse 14, with those beautiful words, but oh, so understated, as is Luke's custom. And so we came To Rome. After all of that, you would think that Luke would bring out the fanfare. But he understates what is such an important part. And so we came to Rome. The entire book of Acts ends in chapter 28, verse 30 and 31 with these words. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You know why that's important? Because this is God's plan. God wants Paul and the gospel in Rome. He said as much in chapter 23, verse 11, just a couple of chapters back. Look at it. Chapter 23, verse 11. Paul had been before the court of the Sanhedrin. He had been beaten within an inch of his life. Because God wanted him in Jerusalem and he wanted him to be able to testify to the people, the Jews in Jerusalem. And then after he testified to the Jews in Jerusalem, God wanted Paul to be able to 
testify of the Lord Jesus Christ to the chief priests and the rulers of the Sanhedrin. And after he did that, that night, look at it in chapter three, verse 11, the following night, the Lord, the Lord stood by him. That's the Lord, as in the Lord Jesus Christ stood by him and said, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is essential to understanding the perilous journey from Jerusalem to Rome. It's essential for us to understand why it exists and what God hopes to teach us through it. It is essential because God wants the gospel in Rome before Caesar and God has devised a plan to get it there. God knows that the best way to get the gospel to Rome is to send it subversively through a prisoner of the state being carried through the empire, just like the Struxnet virus was carried thumb drive by thumb drive until it infiltrated the inner core of the Iranian nuclear system. God takes Paul and the gospel, the glorious, powerful, saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and gets it arrested and keeps it in custody and protects it from there to Caesarea and from Caesarea has him stand before the greatest men of all Judea. Two governors and a king, Felix and Festus and King Agrippa, and just like the State of the Union address, it said that when King Agrippa was there, that all of the prominent people in the in the area came to that particular healing uh, hearing. And there Paul stood and he declared the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all that God had ever promised. And all these prominent people heard the gospel because God has a plan to advance the gospel. And he doesn't necessarily do it how we think God would advance the gospel. Now Paul and the gospel are on board ship, being escorted to Rome. How, how can you devise a plan for Caesar to hear the gospel? How about through a very influential prisoner? Why is this all happening in chapter 23? Why is this happening in chapter 27 and 28? Because all the way back in chapter 1, you remember what Jesus said. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you're a Jew living in Jerusalem, Rome is the ends of the earth. It may not be the farthest possible location distance wise from Jerusalem that you could possibly imagine. But friends, it is a fortress of ungodliness, an impenetrable fortress. The gospel can't break through to Rome. But this perilous journey says God is advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth and nothing 
can stop it. Not a storm. Not a shipwreck. Not soldiers with orders to kill every prisoner so that they don't get away. And not a snake bite. Every one of those would have taken me and you out. But God is advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. And nothing can stop it. See, this is a fulfillment of what Jesus said. I will build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Do you know why that was such an important story to include in the record of Acts? Because the original hearers of this letter, the original readers of this book, they were being persecuted in such a way that I'm sure that they had lost hope that the gospel was advancing anywhere. They lived in a culture that hated Jesus thought the gospel was foolishness. They lived in a culture that was obsessed with sex and violence. They had probably lost hope. But Luke said, wait a minute, I've got a story to tell you. God is advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth and nothing, nothing can stop it. The advance of the gospel is as unfinished as the book of Acts. We leave Paul living two years under his own expense, teaching and preaching the kingdom of God to all who would listen. (laughs) And you're like, what happened? Did he get before Caesar? Of course he did. I don't know what happened, though. But I believe he did because God said he was going to. It just is it's abrupt. What what happened? Where's where's the where's the end of the story? I'm sure Paul Harvey would be like, where's the rest of the story? It's being written today through Timberlake Baptist Church, through Winchester Baptist Church, in Lynchburg and Winchester and Burundi and Southeast Asia and Africa that's so big you can practically fit all the countries in the world inside its landmass. God is still advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. And whatever you have going on, whatever problems you're facing today, no matter how big and how painful, no matter what successes you have seen, they are all temporary, my friends. This is a glorious truth that can send us out into this week trusting our God who is advancing his gospel and nothing can stop it. What do you say we join him this week in our neighborhood and in our family with our kids and with our unsaved brothers and sisters and with those neighbors that we've never even met or with the ones that we have a really close relationship with but have never had the Courage to talk about the gospel. What do you say we just sing the praises of the Lord Jesus Christ from Lynchburg to Rome? 